Learned Luck, a conversation about opportunities and life experiences. Here are your hosts, Connor and Larry. Never stop learning. Keep the sense of wonder you had as a child. That's exactly the mantra that our guest today lives by every day. Please welcome our guest, Department Chair of Computer Technology, Mr. Steve Robinette. Hi, good Hi, morning. Steve. Good morning. Hey, Steve, how are you doing today? I'm well, thanks for having me. Absolutely, we appreciate it. Uh, so, well, Steve, what do you do for a living? Today, I am the uh, Department Chair, as you said, of uh, Computer Technology here at Great Falls College. I uh, oversee the, uh, I teach, I should say first, I teach in the Programming and Operating Systems classes. Uh, the pro- degree programs that I oversee are the Computer Programming, Computer Networking, or Cybersecurity, and Information System degrees. Goodness, that's a whole lot of technology. <laughs> and it's always changing. <laughs> Absolutely. So what is it that you wanted to be when you grew up? Well, oddly enough, I wanted to, my parents told me that I was either going to be a scientist or a teacher. You know, I grew up in the 1960s, and that was the, uh, the space race. And so technology, rockets, engineering, all things about science were just really at the forefront of everybody's social sense. Um, you know, it was Cold War mentality, but there was a lot of things that were really promoting the sciences. And so I really had an interest in science as a kid. But I also always, I always loved school. I was kind of blessed with that. And because I really liked my teachers, I often talked about wanting to be a teacher. And I really held on to that. As I went into high school, I got really interested in music. And as it turns out, I ended up getting my undergraduate degree in music, which Hmm. is kind of an odd thing, but. Okay, so how did we go from getting a degree in music to becoming the department chair of, of computer technology. So like for most of us, it's a long path with some some odd turns in it. I would say that my interest in music during high school, which just got more and more intense, really led me to, to pursue a music degree. And with the idea of being a teacher, teaching music, which in fact I did for about three years. But at that same time, this was now the early 1980s, um, You know, PCs really weren't affordable things you could have in your house. The affordable personal computer revolution really probably didn't hit the home market until, I'd say, the mid mid to late 1980s. But as these things were coming out, I really got a real interest in them. The middle school that I was teaching at had bought a Commodore 64, which is a computer you may have seen in history books. So this Commodore 64 sat in the library for about two months and nobody touched it because nobody knew what to do with it. As I said, I've I'd always had this interest. So I started staying after school, picked up the manual and actually started keying in programs. The back of the manual to it had programs in the, in the basic programming language to do odd little, you know, trivial little things. But they weren't trivial to me because I was actually writing these instructions and making little animations and making a balloon randomly float across the screen. And I thought, this is pretty cool. <laughs> and so as I, as I got more interested in a little bit of experience, I uh, actually went back to a community college in Virginia where I was teaching and took a couple of courses in um, computer programming. I um, learned the COBOL programming language and Fortran, which were two early languages that are still around today, but not used as much. At the same time, I had some friends who were working for Honeywell. In those days, you might know Honeywell, you might think of Honeywell, you think of thermostats, but they were really big in avionics. They still are. 
And in those days, they actually had a mainframe computer business. Uh, I had some friends who were teaching for Honeywell, and what they were doing was teaching their Honeywell systems to the employees of their customers, mostly uh, military and federal government. And I thought, this sounds wonderful. I can play with computers and I can teach. And I was lucky uh, to, to get that position. The odd thing is, in those days, not many schools were turning out computer uh, science graduates because really the, the degree as such hadn't really come to the forefront yet. So what Honeywell looked for is either people with math degrees or, oddly enough, people with music degrees. If you think about it a bit, music and computer science and programming languages have a great deal in common. Music is a language. It is a set of symbols. They're abstractions of things. They're a, it's a notation of things that occur over time and in what order and what repeats and what doesn't. And that's all of that really does apply to uh, computer programming languages. So they were looking for people with, you know, like I said, either math or music backgrounds. And so I was a good fit. And so I spent about six years working for them as a stand-up instructor. And it was a marvelous job. I got a lot of travel out of it. I spent a lot of time in Europe with, with our customers. Um, so I got to see some of the world. At that time, I was living in the uh, metro D.C. area. And so, of course, there were lots and lots of um, other companies and jobs involving you know, technology. After about six years, it was becoming apparent that Honeywell was going to get out of that business. And so I started looking around and spent the next um, 10 years working for a variety of different uh, defense contractors as a programmer. So I got a lot of on-the-job experience. Um, obviously, I met a lot of smart people along the way. Come around the late 90s, I was tired of living in the DC metro DC area. As a result, I um, moved to Western Maryland, back to, actually to my hometown, where there was a position at a small community college, Allegheny College of Maryland. And this is where I really found what I wanted to do in life. I had, you know, 15, 16 years of experience as a programmer, so I could bring that real world experience into a classroom. And um, I've been doing that pretty much ever since. So it's a pretty, uh, pretty interesting lifelong journey, then. <laughs> it's a, a few weird turns, but absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. You said that you actually visited Europe and some like out of state or out of country areas for your job. How were those experiences? Oh, they were great. Um, most of my time, most of my time there, I spent in Holland. I worked with um, a military transport organization that was bringing like supplies into all of the uh, bases in Europe through the port of Rotterdam, and so I worked there and supported. Uh, we worked on supporting shipping operations in Rotterdam um, to anybody who can get a chance to get out of the out of the country and live abroad or work abroad a bit I highly recommend it it really changes your outlook on life you see how different countries run how different cultures are people not everybody thinks the same it gives you a little bit of humility because you're suddenly a guest in somebody else's country so you get to be I think smart about being a good guest learning the local customs so it's, it was a great experience. I also worked some in Italy and some in Norway. And again, just a nice variety of experiences. And I think it really changes your, your worldview. And you're better for it. Absolutely. So the end of your career was in Maryland, or at least that's where you finished telling us. How did you end up in Montana? <laughs> uh, one word, motorcycle. <laughs> um, yeah, so my wife and I... Um, both ride motorcycles, and 
I guess in the early 2000s, we said, you know, maybe we should try taking a trip sometime. And we decided we were going to head west because we really liked, always liked the west. And we said, well, if we get as far as Ohio and decide that, you know, this isn't for us, we'll turn around and come home. Uh, That first trip ended up in Gillette, Wyoming. So we kind of figured out that we really kind of liked it. Uh, The next year, we took our next trip, and this time we ended up in Glacier National Park. On the way there, we came um, up, you know, through Billings and Judith Gap, and then up through Great Falls and up through Shoto, and came back around and actually came back down 15, and we said, you know, this might be a place we'd like to live. So we absolutely love the country in Montana. We love the openness of it. We came to believe that the people here had a relaxed attitude. It was kind of a classic Western uh, attitude, and and we found that really attractive. Um, so in 2008, we just started making some plans, and we bought a house, and uh, we moved to Conrad, which is a nice, quiet town. And um, I kind of pulled the plug and um, just made the leap without a job, which was a little scary, but... I was able to spend actually my first uh, couple years out here as a consulting as a programmer. So I had I had clients back on the East Coast that I was able to to live at home in Conrad and be a remote worker before I I was a remote worker before COVID uh, and did that for a few years. And at the same time, I had already made some contacts here at the college and was teaching some uh, courses as an adjunct, computer classes. Then I went to work for a couple years in Helena with the state as a pro, as a web developer, uh, and did that for two years while still teaching part time here as an adjunct. And then in two thousand late two thousand fourteen, a position came open for faculty, and I applied for it. Was lucky to uh, to to be offered a job here, and so I've been here ever since. I absolutely love it. Every day, I get up and I look forward to coming to work. Truly. It's not an exaggeration. I get to work with students. I get to be useful to people. Uh, hopefully, on a good day, I'm helping. I'm helping people, and uh, it's just it's the best job I've ever had. Glacier, that's the the hope for everybody. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, in that process, you said that you um, you know your your undergraduate degree is in is in music. Um, I know that you have a master's in education. Um, what has that education process been? Because I know you mentioned that back when you sort of started, there wasn't really a degree for computers necessarily. So what's that look like? Right. So I actually went back to grad school in uh, 2004 at a Frostburg State University in Maryland. And they offered a, a sort of a dual concentration master's degree. It was a master of education, but then you could pick an academic area to focus in. And so for me, it was computer science. And, you know, by the mid 2000s, of course, you know, there was lots of undergrad and graduate degrees in computer science. So my, you know, my degree there was a combination of curriculum design, foundational education courses at the grad level, along with some, um, with about 12 hours of graduate computer science. So I was doing uh, some web programming technologies, database, data modeling courses, uh, and a course in compiler design, which is pretty geeky, but a useful, a useful thing for, for a programmer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was, you know, I was so happy to go back to grad school. I was more ready for it than I knew. And when I got there, I was, I just, I felt like a kid again. It was really good. I had good professors, people that connected with me and they actually cared. Fantastic. 
So students who come through the computer science programs, in today's world, um, do you think that affords people a lot more flexible opportunities afterwards compared to most other job areas? I feel like, you know, we're computer science, like cybersecurity, computer programming. And then for you, you talked about some of your like remote experience. So do you think that is advantageous for you in the work, uh, you know, in the work market? Yeah, absolutely. Um, a lot of our students um, who, who go off and work will have clients or work on tasks where they are not necessarily in the same geographic location. So people have a lot of mobility if they want it. Awful lot of the jobs, if you look on LinkedIn or, Mon well, Monster isn't so much the big place anymore, but whatever the other big job sites are, you'll see a lot of, you know, this is a remote working, you know, job. Sometimes they have to do a little bit of travel back to the mothership, but, you know, maybe once every two months or something. But for the most part, people can work remotely. Our cybersecurity students have that especially as an advantage to them. Uh, this past year, we just had uh, some students do an internship in Helena with the state's uh, cybersecurity, IT cybersecurity organization. And they worked as interns for a two-month period. And they were told repeatedly by, by the state staff down there that, look, you know, you can have jobs here and you can live in, you know, you can live in Iowa. It doesn't matter to us. Um, you know, 90% of your work can be done remotely. In fact, the uh, man who runs that operation down there is probably in Helena about 50% of the time. He's, he's able to very effectively do his, you know, do their work. I'm sure that this thought isn't lost on you, but you talked about, it came about in the 60s. And, and now you are talking about cybersecurity. And the reality is that what you do didn't even exist when you were deciding what you wanted to do. Absolutely. How does it feel to be, I mean, for lack of a better word, sort of a pioneer in that realm of things? I have a lot of company in that. In fact, any of us who are using technology are really pioneers in that sense. But it, it is interesting. It's interesting to be, to know that we're all living on, on the front end of this wave of uh, really what is the next um, the next industrial revolution. If you think about history in the industrial revolution, maybe from the mid from the mid 18th century, that industrial revolution is probably kind of playing out now. And by that playing out, I mean, we've kind of figured out steam power and making motors and mechanical things. And and that's obviously not going away, but that that absolutely that revolution was a revolution. It transformed societies. People ended up moving into cities. You know, it changed the face of agriculture. Um, you know, you can see that here in Montana over the years. Now we're into this next wave, and we're all every one of us is part of of forming what that revolution is going to be by how we consume technology how we interact with it, you know, it's our economic engine has certainly been for the last 20 years, you know, with the advent of, you know, the internet coming in. So, you know, it's pretty wild. You ask, how does it feel? I think it's interesting to see that we don't know how people are really going to end up using a technology. We can build a technology and all the smart people can say, oh, this is going to be cool and you'll do X, Y, and Z with it. And usually the reality is very different. It's what people as a country or as a world, what we glom to, what we focus on, what we end up creating as the economic engines. Nobody saw the dot net, uh, the dot com, excuse me, revolution happen. Um, you know, electronic commerce, 
putting your credit card online? I don't think so, is what people were saying in the late 1990s. And of course, by, by the early 2000s, you know, we had largely built good systems for making that secure and making that possible. Banks were buying into it. And once the bank said, hey, you know, this is a way that you can do commerce without leaving your home, suddenly people were flocking to that. We have a ton of challenges in front of us now. Nobody saw social media coming. Nobody saw that a Facebook or Twitter would have the economic and social impact, or a Google for that fact. Um, and, you know, and now we're running into a whole other set of challenges about privacy, about interference with, so, with the political process. So this is, this is a whole different set of challenges. And you know, I think what we're going to be finding if we're smart is we're going to be training more people who are technically savvy, but at the same time, they're traditionally savvy. They think about policy, about ethics, about laws, and what it means to really have this kind of influence over a society. So it's, these are interesting times we're living in. So since you've been involved so intricately with computers and technology for such a long time, how, do you, how have you been able to make it work for you rather than against you? I think a lot of people have a hard time balancing that out today. And so do I. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Um, <laughs> Um, but uh, the longer, the older I get and the longer I work with tech, the more I think about that, that very point about balance, which is, um, you know, in the last, let's say in the last two years, for me as just as a consumer of technology, I've drastically changed the way I use social media. I basically stopped following people who put in things that are inflammatory or things that would inflame me, <laughs> you know, so now I'm reduced to really to you know, good, for, not reduced, but I'm down to friends and people who say, you know, who share the things that are of interest and really fun, not the things that are going to make me think about one, an issue one way or the other. And I found that I'm a lot calmer <laughs> as a result. So I'm, I'm being a little more measured about how I consume technology and how I use it. Uh, at the same time, you know, I'm, I find the places where it's actually a benefit to me, where it is, a, you know, where it saves work or it allows me to carry information or get information quickly. And that's been a real change. And for some somebody of my generation, that's required me to change a lot of habits that I most of us form in say high school and college. Those ways of learning, you know, that, that I grew up with are not the ways that that obviously that our you know, our if we want to say our student population is between, you know, say 18 and 40, that generation, you know, they grew up with a mouse in one hand. And so their ways of learning and their way of using technology to assist their learning has really changed. The challenge for people like me, and it's a happy challenge, is to look at that and see it and think, okay, here's how, here's how we're all acting today. Here's how we're, we're using technology. What's the best way to leverage that? Yeah, so it's been a real challenge. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So obviously there's lots of positives to technology and the advancements of technology and the things that we've been able to do. But we've also seen that there uh, can be some very drastic negatives. Uh, we're seeing a, a decline in social ability of people. How has that affected life, your student population, the way that you teach? Kind of, how's that affected you? Right, so I, I, I fully endorse your, your assessment of social disconnection on a personal level. We'll take this last year out of the equation because it's just been weird on a thousand different levels in terms of the uh, pandemic response. But there is an awful lot of, you know, you walk into a, you would walk into a restaurant and see the whole family sitting there looking at their 
smartphones instead of having what I would consider to be a normal human conversation. It's a challenge, and I think that that's, it's detrimental, largely. Um, I know that my wife and I have, we have uh, official house rules about we don't sit at the table and, you know, stare at our respective cell phones. But it's, it is a challenge, and it's going to change the way, the way we behave and interact, for good or for bad. Um, I think that people who talk about putting, paying attention to that, you know, bringing that to, every, to the forefront as an issue is the first is the first step in like addressing that and making sure that we still stay stay connected as humans. And it's going to continue to be a challenge, and who knows what the next five years are going to bring? You know, it is just impossible to tell. So one of the concerns that I know nationwide with things like the the Netflix series, The Social Dilemma, is that technology is sort of taking over. Kind of the concept is that all of these algorithms fine tune and they can predict what you want before you even realize what you want. And they're sort of uh, changing the way people think and they have a lot of influence. Do you see that as something that actually is happening or is that something that's sort of blown up in the media? And how do we protect ourselves, I guess? So that's interesting. Uh, I don't think it's blown up. I've read some articles about in China, for example, there are apps that are tracking every aspect of people's behavior about, are you serving in the community? Are you, did you get a traffic ticket? Were you jaywalking the other day? And all of this is being tracked and people are given a score. And that score can affect a lot of things in a more controlled society, like where it affects your ability of what school you get into. It might be what job you get. It's factored into your credit worthiness. So there is where you're seeing all of these, all of this massive amounts of data and algorithms that are aggregating and tracking it and predicting or making judgments that are solely done through software that are having profound impacts on people's lives. And you can argue easily that that also profoundly affects how people can be controlled. And so those are huge issues. As to how we ameliorate that, I don't know. I mean, we're struggling with it here in the U.S. with not only the social media and political disruption like we were talking about, but where there are concerns now about the power of some of the tech companies of, you know, Google and Amazon and how they're just having too much influence in the market. So those are things that are probably going to have legal remedies or legislative remedies. And that's its own problem, of course, with a political system. But I don't know what the answers are. And hopefully we've got some smart, reflective, deep thinkers working on those very issues. So do you think at this point in time that computer science is one of the most important areas students can jump into these days? It, you know, it really is. And I don't want to say that it's the only thing because it is certainly not. It's not what makes, you know, a society vibrant. As far as, you know, our economy has become an information economy in the last 20 years. This is the thing that we, the United States, this is what we produce and manufacture, so to speak. And so from an economic point of view and from, a, you know, for career choices, it's important and it's a really good career. At the same time, we still need tradespeople. We need skilled welders and electricians and you know you can go down through all of the skilled trades and of course those are very important since i have sort of an undergrad degree in fine arts i still think that that these things about the arts and literature are important and honestly even for i think the best technical people i have ever worked with were people who either 
had a background in, let's say, liberal arts studies, or they had a huge personal interest in those areas. There are people who read, you know, studied history or had, had an artistic bent. You don't have to look far in the, uh, in the tech world to find those people. You know, so those things are still really important. Looking at the big picture in a society, um, I don't think that technology has all the answers to our problems, and it's certainly the, the cause of a number of them. And for that reason, I still kind of keep that liberal arts point of view. I mean, we have been losing the humanity of things across across the globe, um, which brings me to this completely off the wall question. Shoot. Do we need to worry about the Terminator? <laughs> <laughs> we may need to worry about AI and, and what its applications are, and, and those are legitimate. So, yeah, there are a few actual current issues. Um, predictive policing. Um, some of the bigger cities are using a lot of data analytics, and they're looking at you know, everything from you know tracking cell phone usage or how many people people are moving within a city at a time, and they correlate that with crime and uh, all kinds of other economic data, traffic patterns, just everything you can imagine. And these algorithms are trying to kind of predict where they should put more police because they're the, by predictive policing, they mean we are going to predict where it's more likely to have crime, so we'll put more police there. In theory, that sounds good. Uh, a lot of researchers are finding that those systems are flawed, that there is implicit bias in it. When you have any kind of a bias like that that's being used to apply or leverage the force of law enforcement, you know, you've got a pretty ugly situation. The movie um, Minority Report kind of looked at those issues about people who could predict, you know, would preemptively arrest people. <laughs> like, we're going to arrest you because we think you're about to commit a crime. Is that science fiction? I don't say much of science fiction anymore since most of the science fiction I grew up with is a reality today. You know, shy of transporters and warp speed, most of Star Trek is kind of mainstream technology. You know, yeah, yeah, the uh, possibilities are pretty broad. So I think we should be worried about such issues. Yeah, I feel like I'm not going to lie. I, it worries me sometimes. I'm like, you read dystopian novels or utopian novels, and this is like, a lot of this is really reminiscent of the things you, you know, see in literature. And it's just like, it's it's pretty freaky. And I think what's freakier is that it's so subconscious and, it's, and it happens so slowly that these things, we're focused on all these other issues when these things are slowly seeping into our lives. And it's just like, it, I, you know, me personally, I, I worry that by the time we actually figure out this is a problem, we're going to be too overwhelmed with other stuff you know, happening in the world. And I think slowly is the operative phrase there. It does. It's kind of insidious and, you know, your habits change in little tiny bits and pieces until suddenly, you know, you find out that 65% of the country says they get their news from Facebook, which of course is an absurd place. It's totally, you know... <laughs> free of facts or fact checking. And so it's those kinds of things that are that are absolutely dangerous and they're insidious. They become very easy ways to consume things, but suddenly you're being influenced by it before you realize it. Our last major question for you is, you know, you started out thinking you might want to be a teacher, got a degree in music, went back and got your master's of ed in computer science, or now the department chair for the computer technology department. You have had a very long and successful career in multiple ways. So now that we're here, 
what is it that you want to be when you grow up? Well, that's always still under consideration. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm well. I certainly want to be a smarter tech person. If you ask me, five years from now, because one thing that one enduring lesson in my career has been: it's always time to learn something new, and that's a good thing. I tell students, you know, if you're looking for a career where you're going to learn a set of skills and facts, and then never have to go back to school again. This isn't the place for you, and I feel sorry for you because it will might be a kind of a grayer life. Having whatever spark there is that makes you want to learn the new, the next new thing, or the next thing that grabs your attention is kind of part of a recipe to be happy. I think. Um, so, what do I want to be? I want to be a better teacher. I want to be a smarter tech guy, and I probably want to be throwing fewer pieces of wood into the scrap pile in my. In my workshop, as I get better at woodworking, <laughs>、um, I want to make sure that I still remain connected to people. The human connection is an important thing, and this is the wonderful thing I get every single day when I'm teaching. Fantastic. Well, thanks for your time today, Steve. Well, thanks for listening to me. Yeah, thanks, Steve. <laughs> it was really,、uh, really nice to talk to you today. I appreciate it. All right, you guys take care. Bye.